This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thank you for joining us as we begin a new series, Real Life, Real Resurrection, to help us discover the impact of resurrection in our everyday lives. The hope found in Jesus' resurrection isn't just about going to heaven. It's about bringing heaven to earth. scripture is from the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the four stories of, four versions, I should say, of the resurrection that we have in the Bible. And it is actually one that most pastors prefer not to preach about or preach from on Easter Sunday, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But we are beginning a sermon series today entitled Real Life, Real Resurrection. Now those of you who have been worshiping with us since January, you've heard this phrase, real life, and you're probably thinking, geez, Martha, can't you come up with a new thing to talk about? The answer to that question is no, because our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, affects every aspect of our every single day life, and we're going to talk about it until we get it. So, our next Easter sermon series throughout the Easter season is about what the resurrection has to do with everyday real life. Most of us have been taught that it has everything to do with going to heaven. That's a portion of it, yes. But most of our life is lived here, or our earthly life is lived here in everyday life. So what does resurrection have to do with everyday life? Come back the next six weeks and you'll find out. But our scripture this morning is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to hear these words. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. For the people of God, thanks be to God. Everyone wants proof. If we go to apply for a new job, we have to provide proof of citizenship. If we go to, out to dinner and we want to have a glass of wine, we have to prove our age. Now, some of you young folks resent that, but those of us with a little bit of mileage on us, we happily provide that ID. We have to provide proof if we're going to purchase a car or a house of insurance. We have to prove that we live within a certain school zone if we want to go to that school. 
Our own judicial system assumes innocent until proven guilty. Everyone wants proof. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps one of the hottest topics when it comes to finding proof or being provided proof. There's one thing about Mark's gospel that resonates personally with me and that also, I believe, resonates with our human condition, and that is our desire for proof. But Mark's gospel ends without providing it. The Bible is comprised of books, little books within this big book, that tell the whole story of God's redeeming grace, acting within creation, acting within people. It's a fascinating story that would rival any Netflix show that you could imagine. There's murder, mystery, romance, war, there's peace, there's celebration. It is a fascinating book. But there are four books within the Bible that we call Gospels that tell the story, the biography of sorts, of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called. Three of those, Matthew, Luke, and John, do not end until someone has laid eyes on the resurrected and alive Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel, in its original form, original form there, has a different ending. If you have your Bible with you, you can flip to the Gospel of Mark or you can look at your, your, your favorite Bible app. And odds are, if you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you'll see, uh, right after the verses that we just read, you'll see something that says something similar to this. The shorter ending of Mark. The early church uh, founders, when they were trying to decide what they needed to include in the Bible, had a monumental task. They had to sift through all sorts of manuscripts that had been written over a span of 100 to 200 years and figure out what was accurate, what was valid, and what would go in the Bible. Over the years, what happened is people would copy certain versions of books or letters, and they would mail them, not post office mail, but by messenger, carry them to different cities and towns. So what happened over, the time, over time is versions began to circulate. And so those people that had to make the decision of what was going to be included in the Bible had to validate or verify or, dare we use the word, prove that they were accurate. So when it came to the Gospel of Mark, there were two versions of the Gospel of Mark circulating at the time. One, we call its original form, stops right where we just read with verse 8. Then there's another version that seemed to be equally valid that had an addendum, an addition to it. That does actually include sightings of Jesus. But in its original form, and most believe, most scholars believe that ending in verse 8 was its original form. In its original form, there's no proof that Jesus is alive. The witnesses go to the tomb, and all they see is an empty tomb. Leaving them, to, leaving them in a state of wonderment and confusion or bewilderment and, and skepticism. A state, I dare say, many of us today find ourselves in with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and wondering what on earth does it have to do with our ordinary daily lives. On that third day, 
the women who went to the tomb were doing a very ordinary thing. But what they found was something that would turn their ordinary world and lives upside down. Jewish burial customs dictated that you would anoint a body with fragrances and spices to sort of ward off the smell that would happen when, when the body began to decompose. They didn't get to do that on the Friday that Jesus died because it was, he was hurriedly placed in a tomb. And so they did it as soon as they could. A very ordinary thing to do. They get up early in the morning to go to the tomb because you wouldn't go at night, especially if you were women, so it's not unusual that they would go in the morning. As they're walking along, they're talking and chatting, again, a normal thing for women to do, but they're wondering while they're chattering, who's going to roll the stone away? If we'd flip back just a few verses, we would find in, in Mark's, uh, chapter 15 of Mark's gospel that two of those three women watched as a man named Joseph of Arimathea rolled a massive stone over this tomb. They knew that that stone was several hundred pounds heavy, and they knew that they themselves couldn't do it. So they had a problem. Who's going to roll the stone away? But they get there, and it's gone. It's already rolled away. Their greatest obstacle had been removed, and it looks like they didn't even notice. Looks like they didn't pay any attention, because what they did, according to what we read, is they got there and they stooped down, and they looked in the tomb. Then the scene got even more strange because there's a dude dressed in white, not a dead body. And the man says to them, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's been raised. He does tell them that they will see him, but the story in its original form stops right there. He's not here. Leaving them to wonder, okay, now what? So what? The tomb is empty. What's the big deal? They didn't get answers. They likely only had more questions. All they knew at that point was that potentially an absolute death being what we call an absolute. It happens. We all know it happens. But it potentially has been shattered. They went to the tomb knowing that death always gets the final word. But the tomb that should have been closed was open. The body that should have been there was gone. And there's a strange man telling them he's been raised, shaking the very foundations of their absolute truth. And they're scared. They're alarmed. But maybe it's good news. Maybe if that absolute can be shattered, what else can be shattered? If death, such a certainty, can suddenly become an uncertainty, what else can 
Perhaps they'll learn that, as Jesus told them, the poor will be blessed. Perhaps they'll learn again, as Jesus told them, that those who mourn and grieve will be comforted. Perhaps they'll learn that those who are humble will be lifted up and that the proud and the aggressive will be brought low. Maybe they'll learn that there is justice and mercy to roll down over corruption. Maybe they'll learn there is a power to heal broken families. Perhaps there's a way to restore fractured relationships. Maybe they'll learn God is doing a new thing to bring peace, a new way of demonstrating God's extravagant grace and forgiveness. But they didn't leave with proof. They left with more questions. In the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, we are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. We are closer to God when we're asking questions than when we think we have the answers. Perhaps when they questioned their absolutes, they found the proof they needed. Sometimes the absolutes that we experience in life are what prevent us from believing and experience, experiencing the power of resurrection in our everyday life. Oh, it's okay, we've accepted because of Jesus' resurrection we're going to heaven. Personally, I'm pretty pumped about that. That's good news. But then we forget. What does resurrection have to do with everyday life? Sometimes our absolutes prevent us from experiencing that. Those absolutes may be the hurts, the absolute certainties that we know what happened to us in our past or what we did in our past. Some of those absolutes may be the question of suffering in the world. Many of us just cannot get past the fact that there is suffering in the world, but yet we say God is a loving God. We just cannot make that equation equal, and it prevents us from experiencing resurrection power. Perhaps our absolutes are our own traumas, our divorce, our abuse, the mistakes we made or are making in raising our children. Perhaps for those of you walking the hallways of school, those absolutes are that you are just convinced that you are not good enough. Some of our absolutes are political or economic views. Whatever it may be, all of those absolutes become a big, massive stone blocking God's access to our hearts and preventing us from experiencing the good news of resurrection in our everyday comings and goings. There was no proof to those first few women that Jesus was alive. None whatsoever as they stood at that tomb. None. The only thing they knew is a stone had been rolled away and life had forever changed. When God rolled that one stone away, hope came alive and walked out. 
Those absolutes or obstacles in our own lives tend to keep us locked up in a metaphorical grave. But God longs to take those stones and roll them away so that we may truly live. That one stone that God rolled away from the tomb was the first of millennia of stones. Because friends, God is still in the business of rolling stones. My daughter and I have a favorite song that we listen to, ironically, usually around Easter time. It's a song by Lauren Daigle. It's several, several years old. And I remember listening to this song several years ago, asking myself, what is she talking about? And it finally dawned on me. Listen to these lyrics. Out of the shadows, bound for the gallows, a dead man walking, Till love came calling, rise up. Six feet under, I thought it was over and answered a prayer, the voice of a Savior, rise up. And all at once, I came alive, this beating heart, these open eyes. The grave let go and the darkness should have known, you're still rolling stones. Those stones that we have keep us locked in a grave that prevents us from experiencing the lavish, extravagant, forgiving, and grace-filled love of God. Oh, I understand it's hard to believe that Jesus was raised to new life. I can't give you scientific proof. It doesn't exist. But what question we have for us is, is it easier to believe that Jesus was raised to new life or is it easier to believe that God rolled a stone? If the whole story is hard, that's okay. I understand that. But how about starting with the stones? If you allow God, if you just take a step to risk allowing God to roll those stones away from you, I promise you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will get the proof you need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> As we... Prepare to receive communion. Again, I would ask if there's anyone here who did not get your elements, our very talented ushers are more than happy to help with that. And those of you at home, go ahead and prepare your elements. Although we are not able to celebrate communion as we are used to with actual bread and juice, the elements themselves don't matter. What matters is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. I would remind you that this is an, we, in the United Methodist Church, we practice open communion. What that means is this is an open table. This is Christ's table, not First Farragut United Methodist table, not my table. It is Christ's table, and as such, all are welcome to receive communion. I invite you to receive this invitation as we also a prayer, pray a prayer of confession together. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, 
who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and of wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory. And we feast at his heavenly banquet through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church. All honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, he broke the bread, gave thanks to God, and gave it to each of his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. I invite you to peel back that first very thin layer and you'll find a wafer. You're welcome to go ahead and receive the wafer. And when the supper was over, he took the cup He gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Welcome. Go ahead and pull that second layer back. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our series, Real Life, Real Resurrection. See you then.